we, we talk about the Bible. Unfortunately, the Bible has just, you know, it's not a new concept, but the Bible has just become a weapon for people's political persuasion. So how do, how do we help people recognize maybe their unhealthy loyalty to the Bible and, and put on a new understanding or new way of looking at scriptures, uh, less as a weapon and, and more as a, a resource for their life and guidance. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Caitlin Schess. She is a writer whose work has appeared in Sojourners, Christianity Today, The New York Times, Christ and Pop Culture, and Relevant Magazine. She's currently pursuing a PhD from Duke University Divinity School, and she has a new book, The Liturgy of Politics. Caitlin, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. So before we go down Periscope in the book uh, in just a second, uh, what would you want our audience to know about you? Mm. Um, I am a military kid, so I grew up kind of all over the place. There's not really one location that feels like home to me. So like you just said, I'm at Duke right now and Durham is new to me and I'll be here for a while, but that feels um, strange (laughs) to not be moving so often. Um, As you said, I'm I'm a writer. I love finding ways to communicate with people, whether that's through the written word or speaking with people. Um, I spent five years in Dallas in seminary. Uh, where I was also working at a church first with children and then with young adults. Um, and that was like 
just such a sweet time in my life um, doing Bible studies and meeting with men and women and um, putting on events at the church. And that was just really a place that has formed the interest that I have now academically. I'm, I'm interested in questions about political theology, about ecclesiology, and especially about how we read scripture. But all of those questions really in part come from my own interest, but really also come from time spent in a local church where I saw people's questions and sat with them working through them. And, um, and so that's something that has shaped even just the beginning of my program here at Duke. There are some people here who for, with very good reasons are super academic and want to kind of stay in that space entirely. And I think I'm always going to be someone who wants to be both thinking academically and writing academically, but also in the church um, and in lots of churches and trying to kind of equip people with the resources I've been really blessed to have in those spaces so that we can think better together about both politics more generally, how we engage in it, and also how we read scripture and how we read scripture in our communities together. All right. I have to ask, um, military kid, what was the most fascinating place you lived in? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, nowhere fun. <laughs> people, people, people ask that all the time. And I lived in like Ohio. Like it was not, oh. we were not going anywhere cool, but we did. I spent most of my time growing up in Colorado and Virginia, which are both really beautiful, fun places to be, but nowhere um, particularly interesting. <laughs> I should have warned you before the podcast, um, the actual state of Ohio sponsors this podcast. So um, you, you've really I, gotten us in trouble. I get in trouble with that a lot because it's my default example of boring place. And inevitably, <laughs> someone listening is like, um, I'm from Ohio and I love it. And I'm sure it's great. I just it was not the best place for us. <laughs> like every state in the Midwest, there is a place that's great in that state. Sure. Yeah. And then you just kind of move on. So uh, Dallas to Duke. Why, why Duke Divinity? You know, part of it was just some of the people here. I'm working with Luke Brotherton um, and he's someone whose work I had been appreciating for a really long time. And there were resources here to study the, the stuff that I want to study. I'm, I'm doing some of my coursework in the political science department, which um, was exciting for me to get a better background in political theory. Um, but also coming from Dallas, I, I wanted to have a different experience and a different kind of theological environment. I was coming for a pretty narrow conservative one. And I just wanted to be in a different kind of space and read different things than I'd been reading. And I already can tell now I'm only a semester and a half into my program here, but I can already tell how thankful I am to have been in a diversity of places, because I feel like there are things I learned in Dallas that I wouldn't have learned here. And there are so many things I'm reading here and interacting with here that I wouldn't have there. And so I'm thankful that I made that decision, but it was kind of a little bit about Duke specifically, and a little bit about making sure that I kind of had a broad range of, of experience in theological spaces. So nothing to do with like coach K was leaving town and <laughs> you just happened to enroll the same time he announces his retirement and yeah, sending I've, him off. Yeah. I've really had to adjust coming from a little seminary that is a standalone seminary to Duke where I can't just not care about that stuff. <laughs> I, it frequently happens that I'll be going to campus, you know, to go to the library or something and it'll be chaos. And I'll think what on earth is going on? And people will be like, are you not paying attention? There's a big game today. Like I, it's been an adjustment to learn how, um, how much people care. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to say that Dallas Theological Seminary isn't in the final four every year or? Weirdly enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was born in Alabama, moved to North Carolina when I was a kid, and everybody's like, who are you going to pull from basketball? And like our family was like, 
who cares? <laughs> because we had <laughs> we had come from SEC football country and nobody yeah. cares about basketball. Yeah. Except as I've learned down here, they really care about basketball when they had a horrible football season. Uh, they, they care deeply. Uh, so, uh, you have an, a new book, uh, your first book, congratulations. But, uh, the problem is you set the bar so high for whatever you write after this, uh, the, the book is the liturgy of politics and you're examining our relationship with politics and politicians. You wrote any system will have its flaws and no human system should receive our ultimate loyalty. We will be sorely disappointed if we put our hope in a fallible and imperfect institution. So was there a particular politician or political party that that motivated the writing of this book? Um, a little bit. I so I speaking of uh, education in lots of places, I uh, went to Liberty University for my undergrad, which um, it, it's kind of been nice because of the developments more recently that I can say that and people sort of universally recognize that that might have been not a good experience. Um, it was a strange time to be at Liberty. I also graduated in 2016. So my last two years at Liberty, um, if people are not familiar, which would be surprising because of all the media coverage, but um, our president at the time, Jerry Falwell Jr. was really involved um, in the Trump campaign, was an early supporter of Trump. And even outside of that, just brought a lot of Republican politicians and pundits and, you know, related people to campus pretty aggressively for a couple of years. Ted Cruz announced his candidacy there. Um, and he was following a little bit in the footsteps of his father, um, Jerry Falwell Sr., who was kind of the founder of the moral majority, really involved in conservative politics. Um, and so that place, which I didn't know as a, you know, 17-year-old freshman in college, didn't know was this really significant place for a particular way of thinking about politics from a Christian perspective, not the way, but one way that people had in America, at least. And being there at that time was really shocking. Um, I felt like I was learning things in my Bible classes, theology classes, things in chapel, you know, things in um, campus church and with mentors that I had there about what scripture said, about how we should live our lives as Christian communities and, and people in relationship with each other that was completely counter to the ethic that was being espoused by the leaders that were bring, being brought to talk to us um, pretty regularly on campus. And so after I graduated in 2016 and went to seminary um, in Dallas immediately, I really I kind of thought, you know, I'm leaving behind that world that was at Liberty. I was a history major at Liberty, thought I was going to go to law school. I'm leaving all those dreams kind of behind me, was interested in politics. Now I'm not. I saw how just horrifically wrong it could go. And then I got to seminary and the election was still happening in 2016, obviously. And I realized as I was studying theology more directly how important it would be for us to think about this better, but not in Liberty's way of thinking about it but also not in just avoidance of it or isolation from it. I was watching even communities in Dallas, my friends who were working at churches, mentors of mine who were pastoring churches, seeing the destruction that was happening in their churches because of honestly political idolatry. And I realized that I, I really needed to spend some more time thinking theologically about this, but also not just thinking really abstractly theologically about this, but thinking about practices and habits and what was happening in our churches that was allowing us to think one thing in a certain sphere of our lives, to think, love your neighbor and turn the other cheek. And then in another sphere of our lives, think, you know, take as much as you can get, fight against the enemy, you know, do these kinds of destructive political tactics and not see any dissonance between those two. And so 
it really was kind of the heat of that election. I think for a lot of people my age, that election was a significant point for rethinking how we had thought about politics. Um, and it was a significant point for churches. By the time 2020 rolled around when the book came out, it really felt like a mirror of those two experiences. Both were really intense elections. Both caused Christians to really think, um, rethink or think differently about their political commitments and its relationship to their faith. Um, and it just became clear to me that at least in the communities I was in, while I wanted to address the way that we engage politically more generally, it was going to be more involved and more and more focused on conservative politics and its relationship to, to American Christianity, because that's the history that we were inheriting. And so it was a little bit oriented towards those kinds of questions. I hope that it can be uh, used more broadly, but um, that was kind of the, the crucible in which I started thinking about this. I think for a lot of people, especially that, you know, have been part of a, a conservative movement, you know, I grew up evangelical, um, recognized like the last five years, there's been nothing but a theological onslaught, just mm -hmm. trying to take apart everything and the seeming contradictions of it all. And, and it's exhausting for those that like, feel alienated by it. But I think the helpful part of it, and I think what you've done in the book is let's, let's peel back the layers of what people are trying to talk about and what's going on here in order to better understand it. So we can be in a better place, you know, uh, and I think the common person doesn't recognize or understand that their, their faith and their political allegiance has been hijacked by mm -hmm. higher powers. So I, I do want us to take it a little bit deeper here and some of the aspects of this, you know, there's a fascinating shift that took place pre-Donald Trump among evangelicals that claimed that faith and character of a candidate mattered more than their policy, mm -hmm. only to see that metric change. And the poll was conducted by PRRI. Um, and it, what it looked at was that in 2011, just 30% of evangelicals said that um, the immoral acts of, of a candidate or a, a politician um, and how they behave uh, ethically uh, matters um, a lot more against, mm -hmm. you know, their, their policy, if you will. And then uh, the shift took place where it now says 72% uh, care less about their immoral acts and unethical behavior and care more about their policies. So, um, you know, we didn't get here because millions of Christians radically shifted their morals mm -hmm. uh, over one man. We got here because millions of Christians have have bought this well orchestrated propaganda among evangelical leaders, media moguls and conservative, conservative political machines. So why do you think that nearly 81% or 82% can give such blind loyalty to something that seemingly contradicts the Messiah they center their faith around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple of different ways that we could think about this. One would be the historical progression. And a lot of people have done a great job writing about that in terms of, you know, the way that American evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, really did sort of forge a relationship with the Republican Party that works the way that most idolatry works, to be honest, where you think you're the one that's in control and you're giving gifts to this idol and hoping that it will then, you know, give what you have, what it has promised you. And then the way that that always ends up working is you end up sacrificing more and more and getting less and less. Um, and we could think through that through particular policies and arrangements. Um, and people have done good work on that. The other part though, that I, that I really focus on in the book and that I think is kind of 
not necessarily more important, but it's definitely what I am supposed to as a person think about and continue to study is the lack of attention that we have often paid to emotions um, and to affect that we have thought, oh, you know, even that historical account um, that I just hinted at sometimes can fall into this idea that it's purely rational, right? That as humans, we think through all of the different options, we have reasons for the decisions that we make, and then we make the most rational, reasonable decision. And so we got into this association with the Republican Party, and yes, it turned out this kind of way, but along the way we were making what sometimes can be described as almost like just purely rational decisions. And I think instead humans are embodied, loving, habit-forming creatures. And so we, yes, make rational decisions. Being rational creatures is part of how we were made, but we also are kind of moved through the world by the things that we love. And the book draws a lot on, on James K. Smith's work on this, but really he's getting a lot of that from Augustine, who has also really formed um, my thinking about this. And so if we as, as creatures are moved through the world by the things that we love, and that includes not just love, but the affect, the emotion includes desire and fear and loyalty and hate. Um, and so if that's part of what it means to be human, if the decisions that I make on a day-to-day -day basis are not just purely rational, but they reflect desire and love and fear, then we have to think about that kind of progression of the way that evangelicals have related politically. Um, as all humans, we were susceptible to forces that wanted to shape what those emotional responses were. And so if you look, as you mentioned, I think media is a huge part of this. I don't know if it's everything, but it, again, it's one of the things I think I'm supposed to talk about a lot, which is our consumption of media often happened as if we were just brains on a stick, rational creatures who could just take in information um, you know, put it through a little machine that told us what the correct answer was and then vote appropriately. And I think a lot of pastors treated their people that way. It's fine that they're watching Fox News all day because it's just giving them information. If it's wrong, I can correct them. I can tell them, hey, this statistic is wrong or this fact is wrong and it'll be fine. Instead of recognizing that people's media consumption habits were forming in them really strong emotions and, and those things were, were driving them. It was fear of people who were not like them, fear of what, whoever was considered the outsider or the bad guy. This often played into conversations about race and immigration. Um, it was desire of a particular idea of what the good life looks like. Um, when I go speak for pastors or for college students, I typically show them um, Ronald Reagan's It's Morning in America ad, if anyone wants to look it up. It's just such a perfect picture of the kind of good life image that we're often sold. It's in the ad, there's like rolling green hills and a family moves into a white picket fence house and there's a farmer on the fields. And, and while you're seeing all these bright, sunny, it's morning in America images, there's a voiceover telling you economic statistic, you know, kind of describing rational reasons why you should vote for Reagan again. And when people watch this clip and I asked them afterwards, like what, what were the words that were used? What were the rational arguments given for why someone should vote for Ronald Reagan? People almost never remember any of them, <laughs> but they, they can describe the images to me and they can describe the way that those images made them feel and the emotions that they, even if they didn't feel them themselves because you know they've been disenchanted of all of that since Reagan, but they could tell me what feelings they imagined people were supposed to feel. Um, and so I think a big part of that trajectory that goes unnoticed, not only in thinking about it historically, looking back and saying, how has this happened, but then also thinking how we respond to it. A big part of it that is missed is 
people's media consumption habits, the way their communities were formed, the conversations they had at work and in their families and at church were shaped strongly by a certain vision of the good life that is not actually the way scripture describes a good life or describes our ultimate end as humans. And it was shaped by fears and loyalties that are not the ones that should be shaped, you know, should be shaping a Christian community or a Christian person. And those are the kinds of things that if we want to figure out how to address individually or communally what's happening politically with people, we have to go back to those emotions. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Yeah, and, and you get into this in the book that I think one of the the challenges for people is not just looking at their um, the life they thought they should have and mm-hmm. the fear-based tactics, which we'll get to fear here in just a second, but you know, we talk about it's a loyalty to also to mm-hmm. the Bible, but it's a loyalty to a particular way of looking at, at the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote decades of political disagreements among American Christians should remind us that there is no easy what the mm-hmm. Bible says about politics to say nothing about the centuries of disagreements among Christians around the world. You know, we, we talk about the Bible. Unfortunately, the Bible has just you know, it's not a new concept, but the Bible has just become a weapon for mm-hmm. people's political persuasion. So how do, how do we help people recognize maybe their unhealthy loyalty to the Bible and, and put on a, a new understanding or new way of looking at scriptures, uh, less as a weapon mm-hmm. and, and more as a, a resource for their life and guidance? Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm writing right now, finishing up writing the second book for me, which is about this. It's just about how we read scripture. And it especially wants to look at how we have read scripture in American political history, because 
we don't recognize, and you kind of hinted at this in your question, we don't recognize the way that we are inheritors of a certain way of thinking about things, especially American evangelicals. And this is the way that I grew up. I heard, you know, plain reading of the text. You just sit down and read it and you'll understand. And there, there was kind of an aversion to spending too much time on hermeneutics because what do you mean? You just sit down and read it and you'll understand it. And we miss the fact that we as humans exist in a certain time and place and we are shaped by that time and place. And as Christians, we're shaped by the church tradition that we have come from. And as Americans, we're really, I mean, America has this unique, um, not completely unique, but fairly unique, really complicated history of the Bible being used in political arguments. And we are inheritors of that. It shapes how we read scripture. We think we sit down and read Romans 13 and we're just a blank slate taking in information. We're not. We're inheritors of a tradition where Romans 13 has been used in all these particular ways. And we bring that when we're reading it to the text. Um, I think that's one really important thing for getting people to to think differently about this that I, I saw in my own community in Dallas was us understanding the particular seminary we were at had a reading of certain passages during the process of desegregation that allowed them to oppose desegregation of the seminary. So we could see like, I wouldn't read these passages this way now, but that's how they read them. If they were shaped by their context to misunderstand what was happening in scripture and to misapply it, like you said, to use it as a weapon, why would I not also be susceptible to doing that with my own biases and prejudices and particular historical moment? Um, so I think all of that's really important. And then I, the second thing is thinking about scripture as belonging to the broader Christian community and not belonging to me as an individual and recognizing that as much as it is a gift that we live in a time and place where I have access to a individual copy of scripture that I can read by myself with no one around me. And I am blessed enough to have learned how to read and, and to have that ability to, to spend time individually in the word that that was never really intended to be the primary way that I received scripture, that it was supposed to be in my community, in the context of the practices of the church. And part of the goodness of that is that in my community, there are people with vastly different needs and desires and backgrounds, and we're all going to be reading it in very different ways. And so understanding that if I want to read scripture well, especially politically, I have to do it in a communal context where people can check my biases and prejudices and not just my own community. Some communities can be pretty narrow as we've seen. This is true of evangelical communities in America. You know, everyone in my church reads this passage the same way. That doesn't mean, you know, it's right. It also means we have to be thinking about the sources that we're using to interpret scripture. This is like anyone who goes to seminary hears this all the time, right? You want to be reading interpreters of scripture from different times and places and backgrounds. But the average person in the church, that might feel really overwhelming. Like, do I have to read 10 commentaries to understand what, you know, do I have to find all these resources that are inaccessible to me? And I think it really starts with, with leaders and churches talking differently about scripture and themselves drawing on resources that their communities can use. Um, but also just being in the practice of, of reading in your particular community, even if it is limited and it's not as diverse as it could be, or, you know, it's in a particular geographical place and that's a limitation, but just learning the practice of, I am not interpreting this all by myself. And it is not, it's not just for me, it's for my larger community. Well, I think uh, a re-examining of scripture for a lot of people would recognize that Jesus was crucified as a political insurrectionist. Um, mm -hmm. Those that know the context of Jesus' actions and words see the poli how political he was, but it, he wasn't political in 
the notion that we assume he was political. So can you take us a little deeper there? Yeah, I mean, part of the problem when we come to scripture, as you just said in that example, is we have a particular definition of political that mostly means voting for leaders or policies at the national level. And so it that tends to really limit how we read scripture politically, because we'll say, oh, Romans 13, that's definitely one. Um, maybe we look at some descriptions in Revelation. Maybe we look at uh, Jesus saying, given to Caesar, what is Caesar's, which was one of Jerry Falwell's like, favorite things to say. Um, it really limits how we read scripture politically when we have such a narrow definition of political. And I think if we had a broader definition that said, our communities have to be formed in certain ways, politics is the work of forming communities so that they can best flourish. And so then when you've decided that politics is just that kind of dealing with reconciliation and conflict just among humans trying to build communities together, then you can start with and say, okay, in Genesis, there is a description of human communities. In Revelation, there is a description of human communities and Jesus's confrontation with the corruption of human communities. And then you can look, as you said, at Jesus and say, well, not only is there radical political meaning in what Jesus is saying, in the way that he treats specific people, the way he disrupts the social structure that was oriented towards the flourishing of only certain people against others. Um, but also the way that not just, you know, we can kind of focus on the like radical sense of Jesus in, in the sense of like criticizing the elite or of criticizing Rome, which is all very much there. Paul does that as well. I just heard um, a pastor not at my church recently give a sermon about how, you know, Paul didn't care about Rome at all. And I was like, well, you know, maybe a little bit, he was concerned more with Christian communities, but it turns out that the flourishing life of a Christian community oriented toward the worship of the one true Lord is a confrontation of Rome. And Paul was concerned about that. But so we see all of that kind of radical stuff, but we also just see Jesus caring about much more local constructions of communities, caring about who is marginalized in my community, who are even the people that I am close with, right? When the disciples discount women or discount people that are not considered, you know, a part of their community, Jesus is correcting them. This continues in the early church, a great example in Acts when it comes to this conflict between Hellenistic and Jewish widows, um, having this sense that part of what it means to be a Christian community is to think about the construction of our community to think about the way power plays into it and say, how can we construct this community in such a way that the, the most marginalized, vulnerable people are able to flourish, even if that requires sacrifice from those of us that are less marginalized or vulnerable. And that's something that if we thought, if we thought that's what was happening in politics, we could then translate that not only to how we vote on really national levels, who we vote for for president, what policies we care, care about at the national level, but then we could also say, okay, my community center in my neighborhood has resources that get used a certain way. How can I advocate on behalf of the marginalized for how those resources get used? How can I show up at a city council meeting when we're having a conversation about police or we're having a conversation, if you're in a, you know, like I was in Texas about immigration or a conversation about, you know, resources for the poor in my community. How could I show up in those kinds of smaller local ways. It doesn't have to be, there is this radical sense of the way Jesus interacts politically in scripture, but then there's also this small sense of seeing the way that there are power imbalances, the way that vulnerable people are harmed and interacting with those in a way to say, even if it's just my neighborhood, how does my neighborhood get structured in such a way that the most marginal vulnerable people flourish? 
Let's get a little bit into the psychology and physiology around politics. Um, you know, a stroll through the Gospels would completely annihilate our notion of political ideologies and egocentric patriotism, whether from the right or the left. So why does it not seem to play a factor in the political motivation of American Christians? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it comes down to, uh, you know, what we were talking about before, fear and loyalty. Um, fear plays just a massive role in the way that we navigate the world. And in some ways that's good. You know, like you said, physiologically, it is important for us as humans to, to keep ourselves safe. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day about who's struggling with anxiety and they were saying, you know, in a, in a um, medical way, they were saying, you know, my brain wants to protect my body. Like it is a good thing that I want to make sure that, you know, if there are threats to my safety, they are taken care of, but something has gone, you know, medically wrong, chemically wrong in my brain. And I think that there are threats I need to be protected from that aren't really there. And that's true of us politically too, on, on a physiological level, you know, we have certain responses to fears in our bodies that we don't have complete and total control over. And if we are consuming media that uses light, image, sound, emotion to drum up fear, we sometimes don't have complete control over the way that we respond physically. And so uh, that's why I want that focus to be on emotions, especially pastorally, to look at people in churches and say, we need to think more about media consumption habits because this thing is doing something to you, whether you want it to or not. And then to think about what spiritual practices are available to people to change that kind of response. Because even if they stop consuming media, once you have this habitual response to a certain kind of fear, it takes a lot to overcome that and to unlearn that just because of the way that we exist socially and the way that our bodies function. Um, and the other part of that is loyalty. That again, it makes perfect sense that humans have these embodied responses to community, that we have a sense of who belongs to our community and who doesn't. Um, you can look at that throughout history and say, yes, it's a good thing that humans have had this ability to protect themselves, um, but it also has led them to construct enemies um, just because of difference, for them to see other people as a threat instead of as a gift to their community. And again, I think that really comes from oftentimes for Americans' uh, media consumption and the way that and this isn't just news. I talk a lot about news, but the movies and TV shows that we watch, even ones that we think today, you know, oh yeah, there were, you know, racist or sexist movies or TV shows in the past. None of that exists today. Well, obviously it does. And sometimes it happens in more subtle ways that can be more dangerous where, um, you know, one of the studies that I cite in the book was talking about how white children are more likely than any other kind of racial or ethnic group in America to grow up in a community that is only like them that is like almost entirely monolithic and so if they grow up in a community where they are really only in bodily interacting with other white people then their only interaction with people who are not white is through media even if it's fairly good media it's going to end up having some level of stereotype or misunderstanding it's not that embodied relationship that builds better communities and so they're going to have a sense of who is my people and who is not that is not the kind of construction that is Christian or just or faithful. Um, and so I think not only are those reasons why just as humans work, we're limited, we're finite, we end up finding ways to process information in the world that relies on emotions, loyalty, fear. Um, but then it plays into how we respond to those kinds of things. There's the question of how we got to this place where 
why would we, you know, have such counter political imaginaries to the way that the gospels should give us. Um, but then there's a sense of like, how do we undo that? And that requires um, a lot more attention to bodies and emotions than a lot of, at least a lot of the pastors that I have talked to, there tends to be this assumption. If I preach a good sermon, if I change the teaching in Sunday school, then that will kind of fix the problem. And I, that's such a good desire to fix that problem with good teaching. But I think it does ignore the fact that what's happening with people is not just you know, cognitive misunderstanding. It is embodied responses to things, the way their communities were formed and like brain chemistry. And to have an ability to respond to that, luckily we have resources in the church. We have practices and habits. We have music, we have the sacraments. Um, and those are responses to embodied brain chemistry kind of, you know, ingrained things. And we have to really think better about how we use those and how to make those central to our community, along with good teaching that goes to scripture and says, hey, this interpretation that you've been taught is not, is not the one that is faithful. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about fear. And fear is a, a weapon of the political machine. You wrote about fear has such a powerful cognitive motivator that it sways people against their pre-existing loyalties. Mm -hmm. But our fears tell us a lot about who we are what we believe and how we see others. So is it really that the political machine tells us what to fear or they're knowing deep down what we are fearing and using that to just pull it out of us to go to the poll, if you will? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, on one hand, you know, we've, we spend so much time um, and attention right now thinking about American white evangelicals voting patterns in 2016 and 2020. And that's significant and we should spend time thinking about it. But again, we sometimes forget that we are inheritors of a larger tradition. And so there are patterns in American history that make total sense why we would have certain fears ingrained into us. Um, it's no surprise that a country with a deeply racist history, um, both individually, psychologically, relationally, but very deeply structurally racist, of course would have those kinds of responses. Like it, it's not surprise. we didn't need to be taught to fear people who were different from us. White people didn't need to be taught to fear um, people of color in their country. Um, even though many people have, have spent a lot of time and in good communities trying to work through that, that was not a brand new thing that existed in, in 2016 or in 2020, obviously. But then you have to think about too, the way that that fear gets oriented towards, and, and I'm talking about racism, but there's also xenophobia, thinking about fear of people you know, who are not a part of our country or who we decide, even if they reside here or are citizens here, that we decide are not really part of our country. Um, there's all sorts of ways that we can create lines um, to divide different kinds of people, who's in, who's out, who are the white hats and the black hats and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then there's a way that those fears get oriented towards certain policies. Um, and in the book, I really wanted to focus both on those fears, the way that they get produced politically and then have kind of a life of their own. Like, even if you think, oh, I'm voting for better candidates now, or, you know, I've read some books and I've, I've thought through the racist history of America and I want to be better. Those are all wonderful things. But realizing that those like emotional responses can take on a life of their own and they need to be dealt with spiritually, not just kind of with information. So how are we in our communities responding to those ingrained fears that even if we think we've kind of overcome them can pop up in surprising ways that we might not expect. Um, so there's that kind of 
emotional, personal, communal level. And then there's the way that media can draw on fears that have existed for a very long time and orient them towards certain policies or certain politicians can help us see those fears as connected to a larger political project um, and kind of coalesce people around certain decisions. Um, I think we've seen this not just in the 2016 and the 2020 election, those are obvious examples, but even just smaller in our communities, the way that we can see certain habitual fears that come up orient us differently towards particular policies. I'm thinking of um, in Durham, where I live, there's a lot of energy around uh, more affordable housing. There are people who very rightfully and faithfully want to see better options for people who are in low-income housing, who are um, without a home currently, and, and want to see policies that prioritize low-income housing. The way that we have fears around um, people who are different from us, not just racially or ethnically, but socioeconomically, can get then taken up and oriented towards the kind of not in my backyard response to those things, which is to say, yeah, hypothetically, I really like the idea of low-income housing, but I've seen signs all around you know, my community here that are against a particular project to build low-income housing because it's next to them or it's in their community, it's in their neighborhood. And that reflects a fear that has been oriented toward a political end, which is often intentional. Like that doesn't come out of nowhere. There are people with vested interests in orienting your fears toward particular political ends. And it's effective. Like even if people think I've, I've read evicted, you know, I've read about low-income housing. I've read about racism. I, I know this is a problem, but the emotion pops up when suddenly someone wants to build low-income housing in my neighborhood. And there is someone who is very willing to use that, that fear that I have of people who are different from me or my economic fear of, will this lower my property value, or this will have effect on my children or their safety concern. You know, all of that's, you know, wrapped up in the fear, someone is quite willing to, to use that fear and orient it towards political energy against a project that if someone was thinking outside of their own community, if they were, you know, in a classroom somewhere or in a church somewhere and asked a question on a quiz, you know, hey, what is the right faithful response of a Christian towards low-income housing? They might write a lovely response about how it's good and important and we should support it, but when it's in their neighborhood, the emotions pop up and it really starts to, to be oriented toward a particular political purpose. Yeah, <laughs> I've spent too many years in ministry, you know, um, guiding people through uh, local missional partnerships, going mm. across the world, and and only to see the political post when uh, the next election cycle comes through, uh, and the the contradiction that takes place there, and the the lack of recognition of that contradiction. Mm -hmm. So. So as local church pastors, congregational leaders, denominational leaders, and academics listening to this, how do we guide our people through a different kind of spiritual formation process? Mm -hmm. Less to do with um, Bible beating the political allegiance out of people uh, mm -hmm. and more to helping people recognize their uh, emotions and unconscious biases. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the answer to that is just, just having that reorientation in your thinking about it, I think is really important um, because our default is not to think about it that way. Um, I think the other part of it is, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in 2020 because the book came out then and the election was raging. And I spent a lot of time talking to churches who honestly kind of wanted me to come in and like fix the political problem in their church, you know, um, have someone else who doesn't have to kind of bear the weight of the backlash, maybe come in and fix it. 
And I kept telling people, you know, it would be awesome if a conference or a one night event or, you know, a special speaker could come in and kind of fix these problems. It should be no surprise to pastors, to leaders in, in churches that all kinds of discipleship happens slowly, intentionally over a long amount of time and in deep relationships. And for me, one of the things that I saw like actual changes in people in a community I was in was when we decided to spend, you know, a couple of years working through, um, in our Bible study, the book of Jeremiah, um, the book of James, the book of Luke, and, it wasn't about kind of finding a curriculum. That's another thing people will ask a lot. Where, where is a like political, you know, discipleship curriculum that I could use? And there could be, there are great resources out there and that could be the right solution for people's churches. But I think when people come into either a particular conversation or a conference or a one-night event or a Bible study and know that the issue is political idolatry, <laughs> they are coming with their walls up. They're coming ready to fight. Um, if you have anyone in your congregation that does not already think exactly like you do, which you certainly do, um, if they know that that's going to be the topic, people probably are not going to come as their best selves. Those fears and desires will be motivating things and they won't be totally aware of it, but it will become heated. And what I have learned is when we are really faithful with the regular forms and practices of the church, when we study scripture together, and we recognize that there's going to be passages about wealth and immigration, about foreigners, about the vulnerable, orphans and widows, and we are willing to come to those passages and bring the conversation that needs to be had to those passages in a more organic way than a conference or a curriculum, it really can over time slowly shape people's perceptions. And that includes the practices of the church. It means like thinking through the language and the songs that we sing. Is it totally individual or is it more communal? Are we drawing on the Psalms and the larger Christian tradition of, of music to think about songs that talk about justice and talk about the needs of the oppressed? We have resources that are available to us to shift people's hearts and desires through the ways that people's hearts and desires are most often shaped, which is through practice and music. Um, are we thinking about not that there's one size fits all for how we do communion or how we do baptism. Obviously we'll all have disagreements about how that functions best, but have we thought carefully about what those practices are teaching us in our bodies about community and about the needs of other people in our community? Have we thought about practices we could introduce in our church worship services that maybe we've never done before, but are still faithful to the larger tradition or still have some connection to our particular community, but that might help us humble ourselves, might help us think differently about our neighbors. I think sometimes we want so quickly to fix particular political issues like patriotism, Christian nationalism, um, racism, and those are important to directly address. But I also think sometimes we can miss the fact that if we are really faithful to the traditional forms of the church and also rethinking them, maybe they do need to be done in slightly different ways to better meet the particular needs of our community, the particular idolatries of our community, um, those have the potential to have really long-term effects that a single event or a conference or a Bible study might have some good effects, but won't have quite the same long-term effects. And I think that should be an encouragement to people to say that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and, and one thing additionally, I would recommend to people, if you're in a predominantly white church, if you are a white pastor or leader, you know, the black church in America and other churches that are predominantly made of people of color in America have had to figure out resources for existing in different ways against a lot of oppression 
and ways that were really faithful politically for a really long time. And so if we can learn from what they have already done in a really humble way, and we can return to the regular forms of the church, that should be good news to say we don't have to create some massive new solution. We need to be faithful to the forms that God has given the church and humble enough to learn from people who are different from us. So you were uh, alluding to it a little while ago. You're working on a, a second book. Do you want to give us a little sneak peek? Yeah, thanks. Um, it'll be a little bit probably before it's out, but I'm really going through um, how we how we read scripture politically, but then each chapter is an example in American history of scripture either being used negatively or positively. Um, so scripture being used in a positive way to, to promote um, political work that was faithful and good, or very often, you know, scripture being used in ways that were, um, you know, corruptive of a community or a political process. And I'm excited about it because I know people, when I was talking to people about the first book, really wanted to think better about scripture, especially to have better conversations with their family members. They often said, you know, my uncle or my mom or my sister will use this passage of scripture. And I know they're using it wrong, but I can't tell why. And I need some resources to think through it. So I wanted to, to try and provide that for people, but also I wanted to have these historical examples to really ground it and to give us a, like a more particular sense of how this can go wrong. So when someone says, Hey, we know Romans 13, you know, people should stop protesting. That's what Romans 13 means. Someone can point to, you know, loyalist priests in, you know, early years of the American revolution who used Romans 13 to constantly say that the, the revolution was wrong and say, okay, well, if that's something we might not want to, you know, continue to point to now, maybe we're thinking about Revelation 13, I mean, excuse me, Romans 13 wrong. If we wouldn't be okay with this use historically, then maybe we should rethink our use historically now. And so I hope that those historical examples will both help us understand, like I said, the inheritance that we have, its goods and its evils, um, but also maybe give us some examples to go, okay, if this feels uncomfortable to me, then maybe I should rethink how I'm using it myself today. Our guest is Caitlin Shess. The book is The Liturgy of Politics. Check out Caitlin's work at CaitlinChess.com. Uh, Caitlin, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And thank you for inviting us to think a little deeper, less about policies and more of what's going on behind our loyalty to certain political ideologies and groups. Thanks. Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend a workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 